This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. A little bit of personal news to start the podcast with. Uh, I am no longer Trump's chief communications officer as of this morning. Attended my resignation. I felt that after yesterday, I simply could not continue. I mean, I'm anxious about what comes next. It's the first time I've been without a job for a while. I'm glad I have this podcast to fall back on. But every now and then, country has to come over party. So do you support uh, impeaching the president? Well, no, because, you know, ultimately, I think that the American people had their say four years ago, and we have to respect the will of the people. But I cannot personally be involved. Well, it's important to look forward, right? And not backwards either. Took the words right out of my mouth. Well, it's been an eventful news week from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And much like in Blue Velvet, the lows and the highs often find themselves interweaving. (laughs) I'm sure we can expand on that thesis as we go on. But for a lot of people, this week began very happily when on January 5th, which also happened to be my 32nd birthday. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Will. Thank you. I appreciate that. The Georgia runoffs took place. And the Democrats defied the odds and managed to flip the Senate. We got John Ossoff. We got Raphael Warnick. Luke, you must be very excited about this. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll we'll get to uh, the you know the actual news event of the week uh, momentarily, but I think we'd be remiss not to talk about these runoffs. I mean, I think I am uh, happy about the result, partly for just the personal and kind of superficial reason that this will make it a lot harder for Biden partisans to claim they don't have the votes to do X or Y. Um, you know, since the election, there's been a lot of focus on on what Biden can do by executive order. And if if people haven't seen it, they should look at what the team over at The Prospect have put together. Um, If you search day one agenda, you can find a pretty extensive list of all these things Biden can do by by executive order and, you know, almost certainly won't do. But of course, the reason there's been this focus on executive orders is because people have assumed, you know, I certainly assumed when I was writing my postmortem on the election that the Democrats were not, you know, not going to have a working majority in the Senate. With these two races breaking in their favor, it looks like they will have that majority. It also looks like there's at least a possibility, though I wouldn't put it past the Democrats to muck this up, a possibility that uh, these $2,000 checks might actually become reality. It seems like in all this kind of jockeying, what ultimately happened here was that the Republican Party was in disarray and the Democrats found some kind of message discipline towards the end. Um, You know, Warnick and Ossoff ran on the checks and eventually after, you know, a lot of kind of radio silence and equivocation, you know, Biden came out for them, you know, a couple days before the election. And, you know, meanwhile, on the Republican side, there was this division because, you know, Trump was suddenly in favor of $2,000 checks, but then, you know, McConnell's obstructionist instincts kicked in. And it looks like this time anyway, McConnell has, uh, you know, seriously misjudged things. His strategy of of obstructing everything has kind of finally run out of runway and he's going to be the Senate minority leader uh, when the new session starts. Now, though the Democrats do have a working majority, I suspect we're about to hear an awful lot about how they don't actually because, you know, Joe Manchin or, or, you know, some other conservative Democrat in the Senate won't give them the votes. 
And, you know, certainly the recent precedents, i.e. 2008 to 2010, of Democrats having unified control of government, you know, that's not a very encouraging precedent. The Democrats didn't really use that period of control to pass a, a kind of sweeping agenda. In fact, they uh, they were very keen to try to get Republican votes for things, um, and they and they certainly dampened down what was already a fairly unambitious agenda. And just just on this, you know, Manchin himself, right after it became clear that the Democrats were going to win these two runoffs, you know, his first thing he said was, now more than ever, we must enter a new era of bipartisanship in Washington. You know, Joe Biden came out to congratulate Ossoff and Warnick. You know, and he said, you know, just some pretty generic stuff. George's voters delivered a resounding message yesterday. They want action on the crises we face. Uh, They want us to move, but move together. I'm pleased that we'll be able to work with Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Schumer. But I'm also just as determined today as I was yesterday to work with people in both parties to get big things done. So, I mean, that's a very emblematic statement from Biden, and I suspect it will characterize a lot of what happens throughout his presidency. I think, you know, Biden is the kind of Democrat, the kind of liberal who really sees bipartisanship and compromises ends in themselves. And he's somebody who has conservative inclinations that, you know, make him much more favorable to negotiating with, you know, what calls itself the moderate wing of the Republican Party. You know, he'd rather negotiate with them than he would with progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I suspect we'll uh, we'll see a lot of legislation crafted in that way. I realize that people are very hungry for any kind of good news, and you have to in in some way be sympathetic to that. You have to in some way meet people where they are. I did nevertheless find it a little alienating to see some of the fervor for these election results, given the history of what happens when Democrats are in power. And it felt strange to see the kind of fan culture around particularly John Ossoff. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty generic Democrat. He's going to be, you know, the youngest member of the Senate. But, you know, yeah, doesn't support the Green New Deal, doesn't support Medicare for all. They keep creating these characters all from the same mold. And I guess one of them one of them finally won something. <laughs> well, if people haven't seen it, uh, you know, we, we talked about it on the show, I think maybe a year or two ago. But, you know, when Ossoff ran in that congressional, I think it was a special election, I guess in 2017, uh, his concession speech, I mean, I swear he's imitating Barack Obama's cadences and kind of speech patterns (laughs) almost exactly. It's extremely cringeworthy to watch. This small community in Georgia, which has become the epicenter of politics, sometimes to my chagrin, (laughs) for months now. And it's had nothing to do with me. Isn't it just a little exhausting, though, to see all the same people who are like, yeah, you know what? Fuck Beto O'Rourke. Pete Buttigieg, he's a rat, you know, to see all the same people now really excited for John Ossoff. And I don't know, maybe I need to be a little bit sympathetic because, yes, I guess you can understand why people are happy that the Dems took the Senate. People are hungry for any kind of good news. But I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, these races attracted a lot of national attention. And, um, you know, I think the reason for that is because the stakes were so high or because they were perceived to be so high. I really think, you know, kind of national Democrats sold people on the idea that if we can just win these two seats, the sky's the limit. And in a lot of the celebrations you're seeing, I mean, I think that's really what's motivating them. But yeah, I mean, I second what you say about the fan culture stuff. I mean, I really like this uh, Nick Pinkerton tweet from yesterday where, you know, he's quote tweeting that ridiculous Dan Crenshaw video. Have you seen that where Dan Crenshaw is like in a fighter jet? Yeah, that's so awesome. (laughs) But he's observing the Dan Crenshaw thing a lot 
alongside, you know, what he calls the Stacey Abrams should join the Avengers-esque tweets. Those are the tweets, by the way, where it's always people being like, oh, Stacey Abrams, she's a real superhero. You know, the Avengers should have a seat at the table for her. Right, and he's, uh, Nick Pingerton says, you know, this shows the considerable prophetic intelligence of Jay Hoberman. U.S. politics is cinema now in its decadent, wholly detached from reality phase. Something else in, in, I think, a similar vein yesterday you saw was, you know, there was this announcement that Merrick Garland is going to be Biden's nominee for attorney general. Uh, I'm not going to name the guy, but it's, it, you know, he's not just some Twitter rando. He tweeted, a fantastic pick. Merrick Garland now gets to face the same Senate who failed to consider his nomination for the high court four years ago. This is a storybook ending. <laughs> and I mean, I got to say, first of all, when when I think of a storybook ending, like, Merrick Garland, you know, generic centrist jurist originally, you know, picked because he the Obama administration thought he'd be acceptable to Republicans. Him becoming Joe Biden's AG, that's not really my idea of like a storybook ending. But secondly, you know, I think the way this tweet is phrased is pretty revealing and pretty emblematic about how some people anyway are thinking about this stuff, putting aside the people who have, you know, a genuine emotional investment or the people who are actually involved in these, you know, voting drives and things like that. You know, something like this really does read as fan fiction. It reads like, it reads as if people have internalized the idea quite deeply that all of this is just spectacle, you know, and that the stakes are primarily dramatic ones, or dramatic ones first and foremost. People probably don't remember this, but, uh, you know, something that I, I think it was in that Vanity Fair profile of Beto O'Rourke. Do you remember that Vanity Fair cover story? Oh, how could I forget? Where, where <laughs> that I think came out like as Beatomania was already like a couple weeks into its kind of decline, like the, the zenith had already passed. But, uh, you know, in that, uh, I think it was in that O'Rourke was quoted, uh, you know, telling some students that, you know, the forthcoming battle against Donald Trump it's going to be like every epic movie you've ever seen from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings or, you know, something like that. And he was right. <laughs> and, you know, and obviously that's just the Beto thing of just, you know, he's a Gen Xer's idea of what, you know, young people will think is cool or whatever. And he's, you know, pandering. But I don't think these kind of constant references to things like that, you know, from both liberals and conservatives, the kind of politics as spectacle, I don't think that's really accidental. And I think Pinkerton is really on to something here when he says that, you know, for a lot of people, U.S. politics is now cinema and it, and we're now in a particularly decadent phase of that uh, that's just completely detached from reality. Well, anyway, you mentioned that Joe Biden would soon be president, but that may not be the case because a coup is underway as we speak. Uh, we are recording this the day after the siege on the Capitol in Washington, and I don't want to downplay the severity of the event or the kind of scariness of the event because it was an alarming thing to watch. Um, I will say, though, that it's one of those events that when it was happening, it felt like it was a world historic thing. You know, it's it's like, oh, this is this is going to be in the history books. And now a day later, it already kind of feels like it's receding a bit. Again, not to downplay the severity of it or the potential implications of it. But there was so much panic yesterday about, you know, is this the coup? Is this the coup we were worried about? And then, you know, once all those idiots and dipshits finally got in there, all they did was kind of, you know, wander around and steal a letter from Nancy Pelosi's desk. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're still waiting on some details. I mean, at time of recording, we know that police reported finding two suspicious devices that may have been explosive devices in various parts of D.C., you know, at least one person and possibly more died as a result of this. 
I, I mean, to me, I think the you know the biggest part of the story, and it's something people were pointing out right away, is you know imagine how the police would have dealt with this uh, if this had been any other group of people. If these had been Black Lives Matter activists trying to get uh, into the Capitol building, if they had not been Trump supporting people, it really does seem like they were basically allowed in. And I think to me, that's the most scandalous part of the story. And the implications of it are a little bit alarming when you think, well, this did happen. These mega guys did break into the Capitol. What happens next? Could this inspire further violence? I don't know. I mean, I definitely think it could inspire further acts like this. And this isn't the first time this has happened, right? This has happened in state legislatures as well. Um, I think if people are looking for some kind of sign of optimism in all of this, I certainly think one reading of what happened is that this is the Trump era in its kind of death throes. I mean, this was an act of desperation. It was very disorganized. At no point were these people actually going to overthrow the U.S. government. I mean, they succeeded, I guess, in disrupting, delaying the certification of the election results by a few hours. On a less optimistic note, I don't know what happens to kind of this part of the Republican base, um, this, you know, completely detached, just living in an alternate dimension, you know, uh, immersed in what is now a very, you know, heterogeneous set of theories that fall broadly under the QAnon umbrella. I don't really know what happens to that uh, in the years ahead. You know, and I suppose some of that depends on whether Trump will try to keep it going. I was asked to write something about this yesterday, you know, and to me, I think the most important thing to emphasize, and, and I felt this way, I think, since the beginning of the Trump era, is that, you know, though this is a much more extreme kind of thing than, you know, we've typically seen, I really think the structures of, you know, mainstream conservatism, broadly defined, have a lot to answer for here. It seems to me so much about Trumpism, you know, is just an extension of, you know, stuff that existed on the Republican side before. You know, this is why I hate the Trump exceptionalism stuff so much, you know, the idea that Trump is this exceptional evil. I mean, I do think there are things about the Trump era that have been qualitatively different from anything we've seen before, but I often think that's in kind of matters of degree rather than, you know, in qualitative difference. You know, for one thing, Trump's completely bogus complaints about electoral fraud, those have gotten a lot of support from just fairly mainstream Republican lawmakers, right? A, a huge number of, of GOP House members and uh, at least a dozen Republican senators, uh, at least until a few days ago or until before the events yesterday, said they planned to vote against the certification of the Electoral College. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were backing those efforts. You remember when Ted Cruz was going to be the sensible alternative to Donald Trump? You know, and of course, the entire Republican Party has basically has worked with Donald Trump from the beginning, at least from the beginning, as soon as it looked like they weren't really going to be able to stop him becoming president. But I think going back further than that, I mean, I really think there is a direct line between the sort of conspiracy theories and the right wing politics of the Obama era and before that, the Bush era and what happened yesterday. The conservative movement, such as it is, has decades ago built this colossal media apparatus to rile up the Republican base and drive turnout in, in elections, you know, using a mix of fear, misinformation, racial resentment, and just straight up lies. For decades now, a segment of the electorate has been getting uh, the message that there is a coalition of miscreants and undesirables that is, you know, on the verge of destroying the American way of life, unless patriots stand up uh, against them. 
that is the message you get if you watch Fox News. That is the message that, you know, respectable DC and NYC Republican elites were happy to play footsies with and use to their advantage, provided it was something they could control. And I think what happened in the Trump era is that it kind of metastasized and it became kind of postmodern. And it's, you know, increasingly something that Republican power brokers and kind of talking heads have sort of lost control of. You know, they have to play these things very carefully. You know, for some conservative elites, I mean, for the sort of never Trump ones, who a lot of whom were, were part of the sort of conservative public intellectual brigade, you know, they haven't been able to get along with Trump because their function really is to represent conservatism to a liberal audience which means they have to present a much more respectable front. But it seems to me that even those people, even the conservative elites who came out against Donald Trump from day one, they helped build all of the infrastructure, which eventually culminated in yesterday's events. Um, They were completely happy to play. They were completely happy to use all this stuff, you know, this kind of combination of, you know, jingoism and fear-mongering about terrorism, law and order stuff, all of it. As long as the right code words were used, as long as the right dog whistles were used, you know, I think they were fine with this. And the problem with Trump was just the way he was saying things much more than what he was saying. And secondly, the fact that, you know, sections of the Republican base now had much more allegiance to this demagogue than the official managers of conservatism writ large. So I think mainstream conservatism and mainstream Republicanism have a lot to answer for here, too. And one of the things that's bothered me the most in the Trump era is this insistence, uh, you know, which is something that you've seen from a lot of centrist liberals, very high profile Democrats, you know, especially somebody like Biden, you know, this insistence that actually Trumpism represents something apart from conservatism. This is not the Republican Party as we've known it. The Republican Party is something that is respectable and integral, and it's something we can negotiate with. Pretty incredible to, you know, revisit those statements from yesterday morning about a new era of bipartisanship um, that everybody should be very excited about in the wake of what happened yesterday. The line between the supposedly respectable right and the far right that we saw in action yesterday is a lot more porous than a lot of people want to admit. The last I heard, free speech still exists. Don't First Amendment me. It wasn't real. We were joking. There's been a killing spree. You gotta come here right now. You actually believed we were hunting human beings for sport. (laughs) But you are. We have an opportunity here to teach these people. These are not real people. They're actors. I'm playing an Arab refugee, but I identify as white. I think that's problematic too, in some way. Well, folks, the United States is a divided nation, and that's why today we're talking about one of the most talked about, the most feared, the most condemned, and the must-see film of the year 2020. Yes, we are talking about the action satire, The Hunt. So uh, we had a bit of a debate about whether to do a film at all this week, given everything that had happened. Will had suggested this film, The Hunt, that I had not heard of uh, or seen until today. And I was thinking, you know, given the severity of what's going on, you know, can we really watch another bad movie? But he made the case to me, you know, he convinced me that uh, the film is actually topical. And having now seen it, I think he was right. This movie is a kind of 21st century, the most dangerous game. It opens with a group of allegedly right-wing people, the deplorables, as they're called, who wake up in a field. They don't know how they got there. They don't know where they are. But they quickly realize that they are being hunted. 
And who are they being hunted by? They are being hunted by the liberal elites. So this movie sets up two opposing camps, as all good movies do. On the one hand, the liberal elites. These are the people who listen to NPR. These are the folks who worry about privilege. These are the folks who get excited when they get retweeted by Ava DuVernay. And then, on the other hand, the chuds, the dipshits. These are the people who spread fake news on Facebook. These are the people with podcasts where they rant about conspiracy theories. And between these two camps is a sensible middle ground, and it is embodied by Betty Gilpin. She plays Crystal Creasy, a veteran of Afghanistan, a strong, silent type, somebody with the skill and level-headedness to triumph over this situation. So you said you didn't like this movie. I kind of pitched it to you as, you know, what if Coastal Elites was an action movie? Would you say that that was an accurate description? Okay, I would say it, for me, is a mashup of, of the sensibilities of three films we've talked about on this podcast. John Stewart's Irresistible, mm-hmm. okay? That ridiculous movie PCU that was sort of oh, about yes. proto-SJWs and, and kind of, I don't know, right-wing people facing off on campus, And then uh, Coastal Elites, which you mentioned already, because it has that sort of awful, cringy snark as its sense of humor. It's trying to present, you know, some of its ideas as being like, oh, uh, maybe these ideas are actually satirical. Uh, Maybe we don't even really mean them at all. But like, it's not smart enough to actually be satire. Yeah. So, you know, uh, if people haven't seen this movie, (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying if people haven't seen this movie, of course you haven't seen this movie. Well, can I say just a little bit about the history of the film now that you mentioned that? Because yeah, why, why did you watch this in the first place how did you discover this oh uh my partner and i were looking for something dumb to watch on crave and we settled on this but there's a good reason why people probably haven't seen this movie it's because it was first scheduled to open in late 2019 but because of fallout from a couple of mass shootings uh this movie became for a day or two something of a cause celeb on fox news and so universal took the movie off their release schedule And the familiar debates swirled in the press about, is this censorship? Should a company be giving in to the grievances of the right-wing media, etc., etc.? Well, of course, the movie just appeared six months later. It opened theatrically on March 13th, 2020. Oh, that's auspicious. As you can imagine, it had a very short theatrical run, and now you can easily catch it on demand. When it was finally released, it carried this very cocky advertising campaign. Uh, The tagline was something like, the most talked about movie of the year is a movie no one has seen yet. That's often said about our podcast as well. (laughs) And, you know, it seems that even almost a year later, that is still the case. But we watched it. In addition to being a mashup of uh, those three films I mentioned, or at least their sensibilities, you know, it's kind of like The Hunger Games or, or The Purge or something. It has that kind of vibe of... One of those sort of self-conscious, you know, B-horror action movies. It's trying to be that, but ironically, and I think largely fails at, at every level. I mean, no shade intended to kind of any of the actors in the movie. They look like they're having fun. And, you know, and obviously people got to make a living. But almost all the humor in this film, such as it was, consisted of broad cultural stereotypes and uh, and things said very sarcastically. Uh, and unless I'm missing anything, I think that was about it. Um, so we should just kind of run through the plot here, uh, which culminates in a very Jon Stewart's irresistible kind of twist ending, which I absolutely love. We've done so many of these kind of equal opportunity offender, you know, red state, blue state type films. Uh, It's incredible to just encounter another one that does almost exactly the same thing. Um, So, you know, Will said the film opens with a bunch of people waking up gagged in in a forest for the hunt. 
But he he forgot to mention the scene uh, right before that where uh, you see a group text where someone called Athena uh, is anticipating an upcoming hunt of deplorables at a manor uh, in Vermont. Uh, Later, we see her on her private jet, and she's drinking champagne like a good little globalist elite, having caviar, and a man breaks out of the cargo hold before she kills him by sticking her heel uh, through his eye socket. So most of the film consists of this hunt. Uh, The perspective changes a few times. I found that a little bit disorienting because we start off with kind of a host of characters who seem like they're going to be the main characters, and then they're killed off pretty quickly. Um, So after waking up in a field, uh, you know, a bunch of them find this weapons cache, uh, and then, you know, are promptly shot at, you know, a few people die. And eventually they find their way to a gas station or something uh, that's run by an elderly couple. They find out that they're in, uh, they're somewhere in Arkansas, but then the couple ambushes them. You know, they're, they're in on the hunt, it turns out. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little passage of dialogue that this couple, who again are in on the hunt, say to themselves after the ambush. The man says, he's a monster. Honey, he probably uses the N-word. And not even in private. He probably uses it on Twitter. Those people suffered 400 years of bondage at the hands of that piece of shit's ancestors. The woman says, those people? I'm sorry, black people. African Americans. Privileged, Julius. Honey, it's perfectly fine to call them black again. According to who? NPR. The movie is full of stretches of dialogue like that that are just cram-packed with Twitter buzzwords. Right before that uh, line of dialogue you just read, when the man from the elderly couple is uh, killing off one of the the victims, you know, the last thing he, you know, whispers before the kill is, like, climate change is real. (laughs) Or sorry, (laughs) climate change is real, asshole. All the humor in the film is like that, uh, which, you know, that's why it reminded me of uh, Jon Stewart's Irresistible, Uh, but also Coastal Elites, because the framing suggests that it's lampooning, you know, both of these groups in different ways. You know, it's anti-snob and slob. So just to continue on with the plot here, which, uh, you know, there's not there's not too much more happens in the movie. We get a fourth character whose name is Crystal, who ends up being kind of the main character for the rest of the movie. Uh, She kills the couple with a shotgun. She's an authentic Southerner, so she figures out that the cigarettes are too expensive for Arkansas, so they can't really be in Arkansas. She meets a guy named Gary who has a trucker hat, a Confederacy-themed podcast, a guy who's got no time whatsoever for the the lib-globalist elites. He starts talking about something called the Mannergate theory. He says, I I read about this on the internet. In fact, I I forwarded it to 50 friends. I mean, it's not like I believed it, uh, but, you know, it turns out what the theory was that a bunch of uh, these elites were going to kidnap some deplorables and then, you know, hunt them in a manor uh, in Vermont. And this seems to be the theory playing out in real life. The chase carries on for a little bit. Uh, there's a, a section in a refugee camp because it turns out they're actually in Croatia for some reason. Gary believes that the refugees are crisis actors, which, you know, that's a thing that people that watch Alex Jones say, I guess. So just another buzzword. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Crystal uh, decides that Gary's actually, you know, a rat. Uh, he's a plant. So she shoots him. Um, And then eventually we get this kind of flashback scene, which is really where the movie, uh, you know, works its magic. Um, If people remember the twist in Jon Stewart's Irresistible, this is uh, this is very much analogous. So we get a flashback to a year ago where Athena, who is played by Hilary Swank, who's the one who seems to be kind of in charge of the hunt and the one we saw on the, the plane at the beginning. She's called into an office meeting. Uh, and told that uh, a guy named Martin, who she's been texting with, has been laid off because uh, his texts were hacked. 
And in one of the texts, she was found to refer to the president as our rat fucker in chief and made jokes about, you know, shooting deplorables in this kind of manner hunt. Uh, and she says, but hey, that wasn't uh, that wasn't real. That was a joke. And they're saying, well, too bad. We had to let Martin go because, you know, it's all over the Internet and people actually believe this is real. So since she is also let go, as is everybody else who is in on this group text, uh, they decide to make the Mannergate conspiracy theory a reality. They troll the Internet for people to abduct. You know, and, and eventually settle on, you know, the eight most deplorable people they can find for this hunt. And then in the final scene, Crystal confronts Athena. Uh, Athena's mad that uh, Crystal posted, I don't know, mean things about her on Facebook or something like that. By the way, that's important because Crystal is shown as not really being one of the mega deplorables. She's just somebody who wrote something mean about Athena and... Athena developed a personal vendetta against her. And that's why Crystal was ultimately able to triumph over this system, because because she she belongs to neither camp, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and what I like about that, too, is every film like this carries with it the implication that political and cultural conflict aren't actually real. Like, deep down, this, this isn't about politics. This is just, like, people are being offended because of, like, misunderstanding or whatever. And of course, you know, uh, what the flashback teaches us is that this whole hunt was born out of the internet. There was no actual elite lib conspiracy to hunt deplorables. Not originally, anyway. It was only after a conspiracy theory was born on the internet that this became reality. And actually, that's funny in and of itself, because uh, the fictional Mannergate conspiracy theory, you know, so obviously supposed to be based on Pizzagate. And I love that if you transfer that, you know, to reality, the implication is that, well, like Pizzagate wasn't real. But then after conservatives started talking about it, then it became real. That's why <laughs> Prince Andrew went on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> but so Athena and Crystal have this kind of epic showdown. Uh, and then there's one more line of dialogue that I think uh, is important. Because it turns out that Athena has given Crystal the nickname uh, Snowball. This has been inspired by Animal Farm. And Crystal says, but Snowball was an idealist, you know, as they're lying there, you know, bloody midway through their fight. But Athena is shocked to learn that Crystal has read Animal Farm. And so, you know, this is like, again, the twist ending of Jon Stewart's Irresistible, where, you know, it turns out that all of these supposedly down-home, you know, bucolic townspeople have actually read, you know, Manufacturing Consent and stuff like that. All the folksiness uh, is just an act. Well, actually, also the implication is kind of like, wait, you're telling me that you're you're an online mega dipshit, but but you can also read, you know, that, that blows my mind. And what's also funny about that is the online right fucking loves George Orwell. <laughs> I mean, like if there's one book it's possible they've read aside from Atlas Shrugged, it's Animal Farm. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty much the movie. Crystal leaves on Athena's private plane, you know, takes her clothes. She takes her champagne, heals her wound, gets on the private plane. And, and you know, at the end, she's drinking champagne and caviar herself. I don't really know what to make of that ending. I don't really know what the thesis of the film is. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you have some insight there. I wasn't uh, quite sure what to make of this. Well, another confusing part, actually, is the recurring motif of the story of the tortoise and the hare. I'm sure everyone is familiar with that old parable, and yet the movie would think that we are not familiar with it because Betty Gilpin tells the story in this excruciatingly long Tarantino-inflected monologue that comes halfway through. But she tells it with a twist, which is that after the tortoise beats the hare, 
the hare has revenge. The hare comes to the house when the tortoise is having dinner and kills the tortoise uh, because ultimately the hare owns the house. You know, it's it's the hare's world and we're just living in it. And I had a lot of trouble reconciling that, you know, what is supposed to be a thematically important story with the actual movie on screen. Is Betty Gilpin supposed to be the tortoise? Is Hilary Swank the hare? If so, how come Betty Gilpin survives at the end? Wouldn't the suggestion of that story be, you know, with its twist that Hilary Swank would come and ultimately win? Anyway, I'm I'm asking this more rhetorically than anything because I I don't think it actually matters. Well, that's good because I don't know the answer to any of those questions. I think you've more or less outlined the thesis of the movie, which is that, uh, you know, America is a divided nation, but we can ultimately blame it on the Internet. And and we, we share more in common than we think we do because we can all read. A lot of the satire, you know, it's it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The movie sets up this dichotomy between these kind of annoying libs and these mega chuds, you know, a very South Park kind of dichotomy. I mean, it almost feels redundant to say this because it's so obvious. But I mean, who are the people who are really destroying America? Is it some annoying lib who cares about microaggressions or is it Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post? Or is it the Koch brothers pouring money into the Senate? Or hell, you know, is it is it Barack Obama making some phone calls to rally people behind Joe Biden? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, the actual face of what's destroying America does not look like these two camps exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is fundamentally the problem with or you know it's one of the major problems with all these kind of equal opportunity offender culture war movies is that they're actually kind of right that the culture war is sort of this like ethereal and somewhat illusory and somewhat contrived thing but they're very wrong about what its source is because you know if you wanted if you want to do actual satire of this you got to target the top and the films like this never do another reason why it doesn't work is because this movie posits a world much like Aaron Sorkin does on some of his lesser projects where people are constantly thinking about politics and talking about politics all the time Certainly there are people who are disproportionately engaged and interested in politics, but even those people are able to turn it off, you know? Like when you're at the gym, you're not striking up conversations about neoliberalism with people. Oh, God. Well, something that actually, ha- I mean, this is a bit of a digression, but something that actually happens to me a lot is just like if ever I'm in a situation where, you know, I'm casually making conversation with, I don't know, like a clerk at the pharmacy or whatever while I'm waiting for a prescription, whatever the thing is, People ask me what I do and I'll say, well, like I'm a writer. And then I try to put as many questions between like saying what I do and and saying what I actually do, which is, you know, I write for a socialist magazine. But, you know, yeah, often the kind of exchanges will be like, oh, so what do you write about? Politics, Uh, you know, and then after that, they've usually got me dead to write. And it's like, I so do not want to talk to, you know, random service people about U.S. politics or whatever. And funnily enough, in Canada, it's, it's I think a lot of Canadians watch U.S. politics kind of as like entertainment. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> so they, all, they always want to talk about it. Yeah, it is absolutely the last thing I want to talk about. I told you about uh, U.S. politics coming up on one of my family uh, Christmas Zoom calls and how uncomfortable I was. That's how I feel all the time when, you know, when I'm not writing or podcasting. Okay, this is Gary for USA. He's got a podcast called The Confederate Files. He's a Peace Corps, 8.5. What does that P stand for again? Piece of shit. I vote in. 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 Another in. Okay. 
Oh, oh gross. Big game, Shane. Trigger warning, I'm oh. sorry. I think the pick speaks for itself. It's an 8.8. And Guys, we can't include everybody, OK? Thousands of people posted about Manor Gate, so. Christ. It's a gate now? Well, they ruined water and pizza. Why not manners? Listen, I want to slaughter all of them just like everybody else here, OK? But our military consultant says we got to cap it out at 12. Why? It's our first time. There's a poll out today, uh, you know, obviously take any polling, especially so uh, kind of so soon after a major news event. But it is from YouGov, and it finds that 45% uh, of Republican voters strongly or somewhat supported the storming of the Capitol building. 96% of Democratic voters uh, were strongly or somewhat opposed to it. Wait, who's the 4%? Gotta be the Bernie bros, right? Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because I hear that high number of Republicans who support it. And of course, it sounds awful and apocalyptic. But then I think, huh, you know, maybe if it had been some other group, you know, some group that was a little more aligned to uh, m to my own principles that had stormed this, uh, maybe, I, maybe I could be more sympathetic. You know, if the Sunrise Movement or something occupied the Capitol, they wouldn't be bringing guns either, would they? Well, that's fair. Anyway, I think, you know, those numbers, which, you know, again, I think, you know, take them with a grain of salt, but I think those numbers really are, you know, evidence of just how successful, you know, right-wing infrastructure ha has been in crafting an alternate reality. The fact is, if you actually believe in, you know, as I think a lot of people do, these claims about election fraud, um, if you believe that, you know, the election is being stolen, it's not difficult to see how the most kind of riled up parts of the Republican base could see, you know, storming the Capitol building to interrupt the certification of the election results, you know, as a perfectly kind of rational thing to do. Now, there's justifiably, you know, a lot of discussion about how the right wing ecosystem encourages this type of stuff. I think that's perfectly valid and correct. But seeing this poll, uh, I'm reminded of something I, I revisited for some reason yesterday, which was another YouGov survey from 2018, which found that a majority of Democrats believed uh, not only that, you know, Russian bots had interfered in the uh, 2016 presidential election, but that Russia had been involved in actually hacking the vote tallies. That was the phrase that was used a lot kind of in the liberal media sphere was uh, was hacking, which always gave the impression that the vote tallies themselves had actually been altered, which... You know, people might, might think this is a cheap shot, but you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, given how similar it is in some ways to some of the stuff that Donald Trump has been saying. The fact is there's two alternate realities, both of which are, you know, very partisan, both of which are, you know, heavily incentivized by media organizations, uh, you know, inflamed by media organizations that do trade in kind of cultural resentment, cultural polarization, you know, for profit. Now, I think, you know, obviously one of these uh, one of these ecosystems is far more dangerous in terms of its implications. You know, I don't think Rachel Maddow viewers are, you know, going to be storming the Capitol, uh, you know, with with guns at any point. Well, maybe the movie is on to something then. Maybe people really do live in their own little echo chambers. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because the, the subtext of a lot of movies like the one we watched this week and, and even more so, you know, other ones we've watched for the show um, is, yeah, that there's no, uh, you know, conflict isn't real, the, you know, the culture war is fake, everybody fundamentally agrees, right? This is very much the, like, Beltway pundit mindset. Conflict is, you know, manufactured, it's something that politicians stoke, uh, and so the solution is bipartisanship. And the thing is, there's actually something to that, except the vision of bipartisanship in these scenarios is always just like the Beltway vision of it, right? So the implication is that deep down, everybody agrees on the need to privatize Social Security. Everybody agrees on the sensible solutions for a bold tomorrow that both parties can compromise on or whatever. 
And, you know, that's obviously wrong. But the fact is, a majority of Americans actually do agree on all kinds of stuff that Beltway elites themselves, you know, resist. So, you know, a majority of Republicans, it's a small one, but a majority of Republicans and a, and a, and a super majority of Democrats support Medicare for all. You can poll people in, in any state, whether it's a red state or blue state, and they'll say that big money has a pernicious influence on the electoral process, that corporations control too much, and that, you know, rich people and corporations both should probably pay more in tax. It's not to say that there aren't genuine political divisions, just that certain interests have a vested stake in representing a lot of divides as cultural rather than material. They'd rather people be squabbling about a movie like The Hunt than being angry at their insurance company or the elites of either major party. This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm a Texas tiger. You're a liberal wiener. I'm a great crusader. You're a Herman Munster. This land will surely vote for me. This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm an intellectual. You're a stupid dumbass. I'm a Purple Heart winner. And yes, it's true, I won it thrice. This land will surely vote for me. You have more waffles than a house of pancakes. You offer flip-flops. I offer tax breaks. You're a UN pussy. And yes, it's true that I kick ass. Ah! This land will surely vote for me. 